if I talk too fast, which I will also do a lot because I get so excited about it, just raise your hand, I'll slow down a little bit. And I wanna make sure that we're communicating, that's the point. I'll be asking a lot of questions. I'll probably ask for some of you to do the readings. If you're comfortable doing your reading, raise your hand, make sure you read in a way that everybody can hear because we wanna see that what we're talking about is really coming from here, it's not me. I'm just kind of helping you see what's in the text. That's what we want to focus on. And that's what I focus on as I study with non-Christians. I want them to, by the time we're done with Genesis 1 through 4, if they never see me again, they can pick up the Bible and study it and have faith and confidence in this text, that it comes from God, and then it can guide them to the truth. And that's what we really want to get at today. So having said that, I'm going to read the first text. It's in Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. It's really the reason this is so important. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew God they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among <laughs> themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God is revealing himself in the creation. Now, we understand that in the immediate context here, that means as we look out and we see the physical creation, we understand somebody had to make that. It's amazing to me, and, and my context was as an atheist, and I used to believe that this stuff just kind of happened by random chance, that there was enough time and enough distance and enough space that by random chance all this stuff could have happened. But then I began to look at, uh, as I would drive by and see a pile of bricks and a pile of lumber and drive by the next day and then there was a half-built house and the next day there was a completed house, I would think, that didn't randomly happen. <laughs> There's no way such order comes from just random action. Somebody had to act on those things to make it become a house. And somebody had to act originally to make them become bricks and lumber and concrete or whatever else was being used. So there was action behind it. And I began to contemplate that a little more deeply. But the Bible guides us into seeing the worldview that God is the one who was responsible for that action. He's the one that did all of these things. And most clearly we see that in Genesis 1. Now, of course, it was after studying the Bible for a time that those things became clearer to me. And you don't need to know all of that background to get at what we have in the book of Genesis. I will just tell you, most of us here have studied the Bible quite a bit. In Acts 17, we're not going to read there, but when Paul came upon the idolaters in Athens, where did he start with them? Do you remember when he said that he, he could tell they were religious, they were worshiping even the unknown God? Do you remember where he started? At creation. He said, let me declare to you the God who made the world and everything in it, the one you don't know. And he started with creation. And he basically did the same thing that the Bible does for us. The Bible starts with creation. And the Bible introduces us to the creator right away. And that should just automatically turn our worldview back to this creator so we can see what he's done for us in this creation. Now, those handouts that I gave are really just for you to take notes on. There's some questions on here. I won't stay exactly on these questions because it depends on how the conversation goes. We may uh, get away from those a little bit. But I want us to, to look right at the text and talk about what the text says. So if somebody would like to read for us verses 1 through 5. Going back to Genesis 1 now. 
verses 1 through 5 to get us started. Who'd like to take that for us? Thank you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth, what the earth was form and formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God is moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Okay, so the Bible starts off with this phrase, In the beginning God created. And it says he created the heavens and the earth. That's just the way that they explain the universe. All of the physical, visible universe, really even the invisible universe, God created in the beginning. But if he created in the beginning, what existed before that? Nothing. Nothing, but something had to exist in order. He did, yes. In the beginning, God created. So then God must have existed before the creation because the creator made the creation. Of necessity, the creator exists before his creation. And the point I want to get to is that as the Bible begins, it already begins to tell us a little bit about what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 1. God's divine nature can be seen in the creation. I don't think we can get to God's divinity by looking at the sun. But if we look at what God says about his own creation, we can begin to see how he thinks about it and how he revealed it to us so that we can see his nature. If he existed before the beginning of things, then he is eternal. And I want to make a distinction quickly about difference. We, we sometimes confuse the words eternal and immortal. We would say God is immortal. That's partly true. God is way more than immortal. He's eternal. The divine nature is eternal, has no beginning, was never born, was never created, and has no end. Immortal beings have some beginning to them. There's a time when they're made, when they, when they begin to exist, but they're immortal. They cannot die. The word simply means without death, immortal. So there is some part of an immortal being that will continue on even beyond physical death. And then there are mortal beings. Mortal beings have a beginning and an end in the space of what we would call time. And there's nothing more to them. Plants, animals, even our human physical bodies would be considered mortal beings, if you will. They're things that only exist in the space of time. But immortal beings, uh, the angels, uh, any other celestial created creatures, our souls, immortal beings have a beginning but can never end. They will continue on into the rest of what eternity is. Eternal beings, God, the only, uh, the only being that can claim eternity, has no beginning and no end, always has existed. So God, in the first verse, we can see that God, since he existed before the beginning, is defining himself as eternal. He'll define that more clearly later on in Exodus when he meets Moses and says, I am. He can't say I was or I will be. He says I am because he always exists, and that's a little bit more about his nature. But that's visible, really, in this first verse as we see God explaining the creation of the universe. So the eternal God began in the beginning of what we know as time, in the beginning that we would call the beginning. He began making all the heavens and the earth, all of the creation that's, that was made. Now, in verse 2, we'll see that there's three conditions as he begins to uh, to create the earth. Three conditions that touch to the creation, the physical creation of earth. What are those three things that we see in verse 2? Formless, void, and what else? Dark. Dark. Yeah. Formless, void, and dark. Some, some versions have chaos there for formless. That's the idea. There's just no order whatsoever. Void is absolutely empty. There's nothing there. 
and darkness. And we'll see that through this first week of creation, as we go through chapter 1, God is going to revert, or he's going to undo those three situations. Uh, and we'll see that, that that also will tell us something about his nature as he works on those three things. And then there's something else I find really fascinating at the end of verse 2. Let's notice this is the first time we meet God in the Bible. How does he present himself to us in verse 2? A spirit that can move. Yes, there's a spirit moving or hovering over the face of the deep, over this, this dark, empty abyss. There's a spirit. First time God presents himself in the Bible is a spirit. Isn't that interesting? Also, as you think through the encounters that God has with man through the Bible, the first time is always a spirit. Think about when Moses met God for the first time. What was that meeting like? You guys remember the story of Moses? How did he meet Moses? Uh, meet God the first time? Inside, this bush is burning, but it's not burning. There's like a flame, but he goes over and it's a flame that's not physical. It's not burning the tree. It's just there. And so it's some kind of a manifestation of a spiritual being. If I asked everybody here to draw a flame, we'd all draw something different. It'd be similar, but it'd all be different because a flame has no physical body to it. You can't grab a flame and hold on to it besides the fact that it would burn you. You just can't. There's nothing physical to hold on to. So God's first manifestation to Moses was in a spiritual form. And think about how he manifests himself first to the whole uh, people of Israel. Remember the, the, what he did first for Israel when he first showed himself? Besides the miracles, obviously that was an invisible form of his power, but when he showed himself in some way to Israel, how did he had a cloud? was a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire by night. Something else you can't grasp. It's a, it's a spiritual representation of the presence of God. In fact, the presence of God was represented by the cloud in the tabernacle most, most often. And then when he came down over the mountain to give the law, it was lightning and thunder, and there were these other spiritual manifestations. Well, all through the Bible, we get that idea. And I think it's important that we, that we uh, look deeply into this fact that God has shown himself this way first. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want us to look at about why God chose to present himself that way. And he, he tells us why in Deuteronomy 4. I think it's really helpful to us to begin to understand God's spirit nature instead of his physical or human nature, we may think. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15, Moses is telling the people here, uh, speaking for God, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. Take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are to this day. Moses said, God appeared to you in a spiritual form on purpose. So you wouldn't be tempted to address him as something physical, as any kind of an object that's created, even something as great as the sun and the moon that are up there governing, as we'll see later on. He didn't want you to be tempted to look at him as anything other than a spirit being. And Jesus, you remember in John chapter 4, as he's talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, she says, sir, you're a prophet. And our father said we should worship on this mountain, and you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. Which one's correct? And how did he correct her error? He said, God is spirit. 
And those who worship him will worship him in spirit and truth. Her, her issue was she was treating God as a man. She was thinking of him in physical and not spiritual terms. And I believe that is one of the major errors, one of the first errors that we make when we try to approach God. We think he's like us. And so we say, well, I can appease God. I can, I can go to church more. That'll, that'll, that'll make him feel better. Uh, I can give more in the offering plate. Or I can pray more often. Now, I'm not saying those are bad things, but I'm saying if you're doing that to try to bargain with God because you think he's going to respond as a man would respond, if you start doing favors for him, then you're going to miss out. God as spirit is not interested in what you can give him. He made the whole universe. What does he need from you except a relationship? And that's what we'll be looking at as we go through uh, these chapters. God is trying to have a relationship, especially in chapter 4. We'll see how he reaches out to man who's fallen by sin and tries to bring him into a relationship with him in chapter 3 as well. And that's the point that most of us miss. We go to church to appease our conscience and try to appease this God who we think, if I like it, he's going to like it. And I've heard that a lot as an excuse for why people worship the way they do. Well, this is the kind of music I like. God certainly is going to love this kind of music if I like it. He makes my heart feel good when I hear this music, so why would his heart not feel good to hear this kind of music? Well, that's skewed reasoning. God is spirit, and the only way that we can know what's in the mind of spirit is if spirit reveals it to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about how he knows what God wants us to do. It's been revealed through the prophets. He says, no one knows what's in the mind of a man except the man whose mind it's in until he reveals it. How much more with a spirit being? He's not like us. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't act like us. He doesn't feel like us. He's a different, a holy spirit being. And until he tells us what he's looking for, we really can't know. That's why the humanistic worldview is so, uh, so bad for us. That's why when we try to put God into our own perspective and try to fit him in with what we think, we're never going to get there. Now, I might guess at what my wife wants for Mother's Day or what she'd like on her birthday, and I might get it right. I might ask the kids, and they might get closer than I did. But I can't really know unless she tells me, and that's even after a long time of being together with her. We can't know the mind of God who is spirit. He's not even man. I might get close to her because she's another human being. God is spirit, and unless he tells me, I can't be positive that's what he wants. What's great about it is the whole Bible is God telling us what he wants. It's not hard to figure out. He's given it to us. He said, here's the rules of the game. I'll judge you by these rules in the end, but this is what I'm looking for. God's law is different than man's laws. It's not just something to guide us along so that we may not do wrong things. It's something that's meant to transform us into beings that are capable of having a relationship with the spirit because there's a part of us that longs to be with him. He made us that way. So we see in just a couple of verses, there's an eternal God. There is a spirit being that is making all of this creation. And then verse 3, he begins to create. And how does God make what he makes? There? He made light first. How did he make the light? He spoke. He said, let there be light. Now, if this room was dark and I said to one of you, make light, he'd go over and turn the light switch on. You know, several times I've used this argument. If, if he can just speak light, you do it. <laughs> light is one of those things that fizz up to, the, up to the day are trying to figure out how in the world does light work. It moves like a physical particle, but sometimes it moves like a spiritual thing. There's no body to it. There's no weight, yet it can do all these powerful things. How does light work? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> God said, let there be light, and there was. All he did was speak it into existence which tells us something else about his nature that I think we need to really concentrate on here. It ties into what we were just talking about. Where is the power that God wields? What do we learn from verse 3? It's 
in his word. The same word that created the universe, spoke it into existence, can recreate me into a being that's capable of having a relationship with God if I will listen to it and follow it. This is the God who said, let there be light, and then let there be all these other things we'll be looking at. He's the same one who tells us in Christ how to have a relationship with him, how to have our sins uh, pardoned, removed, so that we can be in a relationship with him. So the power of God resides in his word. Well, verse 4. God examines his creation that he's made now, and what does he see about it? Verse 4. He saw that it was good. We're going to see that seven times in Genesis chapter 1. He'll look at the creation and say, that was good. In fact, the last time he looks at it all and says, it's very good. When was the last time that you were laying your head down at night and you went to pray, you went to think back over your day, and you said, everything I did today was good? Almost never. Even when we're really trying, we can look at our day and say, you know what, that wasn't good. I needed to do something differently in this aspect. God never has a day like that. Nothing he does is ever anything but good. It's his nature. His nature is such that everything he does is good. He wants us to be like that, Colossians 3.17. Anything we do in word or deed, we should be able to do it giving thanks to God for being able to do it. That's a challenging verse for me. There are some things I do while I'm doing them. I'm thinking, I probably shouldn't do this because I won't be able to thank God for having done this. I need to just stop right there. I need to change what I'm doing. But we get into this drive where we, well, let me finish this, and then I'll go talk to God about whether it was the right thing or not. Well, that's not the right worldview. That's, that's our worldview. God is good. So one of the things we learn about his nature from right off the beginning, he is good. I'm not. I'm someone who's been touched by sin, and we'll talk about that later on in our lessons. But if God is good, and everything he does is good, that means that when I confront something, even in the Bible, that I don't agree with, that I think well, the God I believe in would never do that. How many times have we heard that argument? <laughs> the God I believe in wouldn't say this, whatever it is, or would not do whatever that was. That's not the God I believe in. Well, you don't believe in the God of the Bible. If the God in the Bible is good, and the Bible declares over and over again, there's no shadow of turning with him. In him there is only light. He's good. We have to reframe the way we think about the things that God has done. We are limited by time, by our emotions, by our limited view, and we have a very limited view, much more limited than we believe, of anything that goes on in the world. And we limit ourselves in that, and we say, I know more than God about this. Why did my mother die of cancer? God must be evil to do that. Maybe God was good in doing that. God was good. There may be another reason for why she got cancer and died, and we'll look at that in our, in our text here. There is another reason. It's not because of God's badness. It is actually an extension of God's goodness. Even the disease that he allows us to go through here is an extension of his goodness, and we have to trust that God is good in everything that happens. It's difficult sometimes. We look from a physical perspective, we think that is not fair, it is not right, it is certainly not what a good God would do. Why does a good God let innocent people suffer? That's a big question. Atheists, myself, ask that question. They don't have good answers. But they ask the question in an accusing way. Almost always in an accusing way. God is good. And we'll learn as we go through these chapters how God shows his goodness even in the face of, of ultimate evil. So God, at the end of everything he does. And we'll see it, as I said, seven times through here. We'll look back and say, that was good. <laughs> because that's his nature, to make good. So God is eternal. God is spirit. God is only good. God's power resides in his word. We've looked at four verses, and we've seen four aspects of God's nature already. 
verse 5, he calls the light day and the darkness night. And uh, verse 4 said he divided. The word is separated there. It's a base word that we'll learn that means holy. God separates things. We'll see him separate seven times also in uh, chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. He'll separate things from things. He'll separate the creation from the creation. And he'll separate one day in, in chapter 2. And what he's doing is he's making things holy. That word, that root word for holy is separate. So he divided here the darkness and the light, and he called them uh, night and day. Then we get this interesting construction at the end of uh, verse 5. So the evening and the morning were the first day. In the Jewish construct of counting time, the evening is where it begins. As the sun goes down, the day begins. And then as the sun goes down the next day, the day begins. We go by uh, midnight, really, and we almost practically go by sun up. That's when the day begins. It really begins at midnight on our clocks. But the Jewish counting was different. Jewish counting by sundown till the next sun up, or sundown. So that we see that counting even here. Well, that was the first five verses of uh, Genesis chapter 1. You can see there's a, there's a lot we can learn about God just in a few verses. But let's look at 6 through 13. We're going to begin to see how God changes some of these other conditions. Remember, we first said that there was darkness. That was the last thing we looked at. He's taking care of the darkness. He's made light. We'll see in the next uh, section he's going to take care of a couple of other things. So somebody read for us, if you will, unless there's a question. For us. Somebody have a question or a comment that, that they need to make before we get into the next section. All right, verses 6 through 13, then. Who'd like to read that for us? Thank you. What was your name? Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Because God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning was the second day. Through 13? Through 13, please. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the, the land the dry land, and called the, the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then he said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit trees that yield fruit according to their kind, to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. <laughs> and the earth brought forth grass, and the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So in the evening and the morning were the third day. Very good. So God spoke again. And this time he said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And he's making this division now of waters from waters. In fact, he'll make two kinds of division. He'll divide upper and lower waters, and then he'll divide waters laterally, if you will, side to side. When he divides the upper from the lower waters, what does he call that firmament, that expanse between the waters? <coughs> he's, given it a, he's given it a name in verse, uh, yeah, verse 7 he says uh, heaven, uh, divided in verse 8, I'm sorry, he calls the firmament heaven. But in the Jewish mindset, this word heaven uh, is a generic word. It depends on the context for you to see exactly what they're talking about. There's three kinds of heaven. Remember in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, I was taken up into the third heaven, and I saw things that were that a, a man's not allowed to utter. He was able to have these visions. He was in the third heaven. They would consider that the presence of God or the spiritual state where these revelations are being made. 
The second heaven, we'll see in just a moment uh, from verses 14 forward, would be like uh, sidereal space. We'd be out in where the, where the stars are and the planets. It's, it's outer space, we would say. And then this heaven would be what then? It's the sky. There's waters above the sky and waters below the sky? <coughs> kind of a strange concept for us. What is he talking about here? Where would there be water above the sky? Pretty easy. Yeah, it's clouds. When you really think about it, it's all it is. He's establishing the water cycle here, as scientists would call it. But there's clouds. And uh, we'll see something interesting a, a little bit later uh, in the chapter 2. The idea that he just hasn't made it rain yet. So there's this, this cloud ring all around the earth that's just full of water. And there are these lower waters that he'll then divide laterally and make dry land appear that he'll call seas. So there's this this layer of clouds all around the earth. There's a purpose for that, and we won't get into it in our, book of Gen- in our study of Genesis up through chapter 4, but later he'll use that in the judgment when he rains on Noah. Those clouds will open then, and the, the, the doors of heaven will be opened, and that rain will come down and create the flood. But at this point, he's got this, this cloud layer around the earth. He's divided the waters below and the waters above, the waters side to side, and he's giving names to things as he's dividing them. And then, on the dry land, starting at verse 10... Uh, starting at verse 11, he begins to speak into existence the plants. And so he has all these plants appear on the dry land, and there's a law he gives concerning these plants. What's the law? That they will have seed in themselves, and they will yield according to their kind. That's a very important law. We take that law for granted. Uh, I don't know if any of us in here are farmers. Farmers don't take that law for granted, but most of us take it for granted. If we want to eat, we shouldn't take it for granted. If we plant corn seed and we get weeds, we get poison ivy from planting a grain of corn, we're going to be in trouble. It is a simple, straightforward law that what you plant the seed of, that plant grows up. There was an experiment done a long time ago with some wheat germ they had found in the Pharaoh's tombs. Uh, It was hundreds, if not thousands of years old. And they wanted to see what would happen if they found fertile soil and planted this wheat germ. And the story goes that they planted it and apple trees grew. Do you believe that? shouldn't. <laughs> it doesn't matter how old the seed is, what grew was wheat. Apparently, uh, it didn't really happen. That was a myth. But the idea they were expecting wheat to grow. The scientists weren't expecting anything else. It just was the wheat germ had, had uh, expired after thousands of years in the Pharaoh's tombs. But the point is, it doesn't matter how old the seed is. If it's that seed, that plant still what's going to grow from it, if it's still viable and the soil's good. And so this idea of a law that the seed will produce after its own kind is something that is so permanent that God will use this law again in a later time during his creation. But I want us to understand the importance of what God is doing here. What do you see in that? Think about those three conditions back in verse 2. Formless void and darkness. We got rid of the darkness. What is God doing as he establishes this law for plants? And what has he done as he divided the waters from the waters? He's filling the void with this law. There's a, there's a procreative law now. He doesn't have to make a new plant every time the plant comes. He's given that, that ability within the plant itself. It's always going to produce after its kind, but he's made so many different kinds, and they can discontinue producing now once he's put them on the earth. So he's filling in the void, and then what's this stuff he's doing as he separates water from water and makes ground land? He's organized. He's a god of order. He's putting order where there was chaos. He's putting form where there was formlessness. And I think it's important that we really talk about that at this point, that God is a God of order. We see it in his nature, that he ordains. That's a word we use a lot. It just means he puts things in order. 
we think about commandments, the Ten Commandments, for example, or if we were military personnel, what, what are commandments called when they come down from the higher-ups? Orders. God is giving orders through his word. God is a God of order. Now, it's hard to believe that if our worldview is, is what the world wants it to be. We look out the window and we see a guy robbing our, his neighbor <laughs> at gunpoint. Or we see on the news that there's war going on. Or we see people getting sick and dying. Why, if God is a God of order, why is there so much disorder in the world? How is that possible? God is not a God of order who upholds all things by the power of his word. Hebrews says he does. Then how is there such disorder? What happens if the soldier disobeys the orders that come? Does what the high command sent to happen, happen? No. It's the same thing with God. It's not that God is not a God of order. It's that people aren't obeying his orders. And the result of disobedience is disorder. So when we look at the problem later of sin, the problem is not that God can't keep things from going wrong. It's not that he doesn't want them not to go wrong. It's that he allows people to suffer the consequence of their own disobedience as they create disorder where his word brings order. And that's why the issue of getting back to order relies so heavily on hearing and obeying his word. The problem of sin is not just a random act that we may have done something wrong. It's all the disorder that led to that. It's all the disobedience. It's all the trail that we followed to get away from where the original order was. And we'll see that very clearly as we go through chapter 3 and chapter 4. So the result of disobedience is disorder. It's not that God created disorder. God ordered everything, and he orders everything by his word. But if we're not willing to listen to it and obey it, and the vast majority of people aren't willing to listen to his word and obey it, so the vast majority of what we see is disorder. God will bring all things back into order, and in Christ he does. Those who obey Christ are brought back into order to him. But he'll bring all things into order at the judgment day. Uh, but I, just, I think we need to, to focus on that idea. We need to understand that disorder is not God's fault. It's our fault for not obeying the orders that he's laid down. So God has taken away the darkness. God has organized the chaos, and he's filled in the void, or he started to. At least on the dry land, he started putting plants. This next section of scripture, verses 14 through 19, is my favorite part of Genesis chapter 1. We'll see as he continues to fill in the void, now the void of outer space. There's this dark blackness. He's going to put these lights up there. But there's something else that, that comes through as we read through this part of the text. So somebody would like to read for us verses 14 through 19. I'd be grateful for that. Coulter? Sure. Thank you. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. All right, so God is going to call into existence now lights in the firmament of the heavens. Now we're in the second heavens. It's even pluralized here in my version. We're out in outer space. And this light is going to be there to divide the day from the night. Now, hold on just a second. <laughs> I thought that verse 4 and verse 5 said that God already divided day from night. It says he did. He even called them day and night. But now he's put these lights up there to do that. That should make us wonder, why would he do that again? He's already done this. He's not a God of unnecessary repetition. He's a God of order. 
So why, why this now? And I think, just keep that in our heads. We'll come back and maybe see the answer to that soon. But as we look at these verses, what is it that God said the lights were for? To rule over day and night. If we, when we get down to verse 18, and we'll talk about that, there's some things before that, though. The separation. Separation. And we've, we've already said that God will show holiness and separation all through this week. There's things before that, even. Signs and seasons. Thank you. <laughs> Signs and seasons. It's interesting to me, and I've done this study probably hundreds of times, nobody ever starts off with the word signs. That's the first word here. <laughs> he said these would be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. There'll be something that can now physically be counted to have time, as we know it, be registered. This is only possible after the physical creation began. There's no reason to count time before when the spirit being existed that has no, no uh, termination to his existence. But now that there will be physical beings and a physical earth, there's a need to count time. And so he's given a way to do that. But this word signs is where I want to uh, stop for just a moment. Because when we open up the Bible and we see the word signs, we all of a sudden turn our brains off. <laughs> and what does signs mean? If we, if we talk about the word signs, especially in the context of the Bible, what are we talking about? Miracles. Miracles. These amazing things that happen. Those are signs. Well. These are for systems. What's that? Systems. Possibly, um, for assistance, I would say for sure. What is the purpose of a sign? It, yeah, it's a message. It points, the sign points to a message, really. The sign points to something else. We use signs all the way in today, especially we were, we were driving in from, from out in the Embry Hills area. We had to follow the signs to go around the detour where 85 is out. We were following signs. You know what would have happened if I had stopped and said, wow. Look at the green and white paint on that. I can imagine somebody was clever enough to come up with that. You can see that at night. I'd have got rear-ended quickly. If I had been fascinated with the sign and missed the message of the sign, I would have missed it all. And so often religious people, when you bring up the word signs, they don't think about what a sign is. They think about the sign itself. And so they want to talk about speaking in tongues or healing or all these marvelous, miraculous things, but they never want to think about what does that mean? What is that pointing to? The cross itself was a sign. The resurrection was a sign. The death will have no hold over those who are obedient to the Lord. That's the sign. But so many people are in love with the cross. They wear it on their neck. They talk about it all the time. But they don't ever think about what it means. The word signs is a, just a common word. It's an ordinary word. We talk about stop signs or stop lights that are signs. Those are all signals. In fact, the word signal comes from that word sign right there in the root. We talk about them and use them all the time without thinking about it. When we get to the Bible, we turn our brains off and it always means miracle or some kind of strange thing like that. In this case, sometimes it will be miraculous signs. Other times it will just be simple signs. It just points to something. The biggest thing it points to, those who know Psalm 24, Psalm 40, Psalm 19, Job 40, Isaiah 40, the biggest sign that the heavens point to and all those little lights up there is that there's a creator who put these here <laughs> that can measure the heavens in the expanse of his hand. When I was an atheist and a young man and looking up at the stars, I used to think, how did those get there? <laughs> There's got to be a reason behind all of that. Now, I went way off where, where I thought the reason was. But I used to wonder about that. And God expects us to. That's why they're there. They point to something. They point to someone much greater than the stars who could put those there. You look at a mountain and something bigger than the mountain made that mountain. <laughs> it's amazing. So though, that is one type of sign. Certainly there were miraculous signs. When Jesus was born, didn't the wise men from, from Chaldea follow a sign of a star over Bethlehem? And they said, we know we've seen his star. 
We know that, that he's here. That sign's not still there. It was something temporary. There were other signs, the tongue speaking and the healing. Those were all things that pointed to something as God was revealing his word. There were ten major signs in Egypt when Moses came in and said, the Lord wants you to let his people go. And Pharaoh said, who's the Lord? Well, let me show you. <laughs> and there were ten signs. We call them the ten plagues. But those were signs of who the Lord was. He's the one that has power over all your gods, over the Nile, over your cows, over your people, over Pharaoh. He is the one you should be listening to. That's what those signs were pointing to. And the Hebrews learned that lesson, and some of the mixed multitude went out with them because they learned the lesson too. Pharaoh, unfortunately, probably learned it on his deathbed as he was getting swallowed up in the Red Sea because he wasn't willing to pay attention to what the sign was pointing to. And I'm afraid so many of us get lost with the signs themselves and don't look at what the signs are pointing to. We miss the message. We need to make sure as we're looking through what the Bible says that we're seeing what it's pointing us to. And the whole Bible is pointing us to God. So, they're signs. They're also for seasons and for days and years. They're going to give light on the earth one of the big struggles I had when I first came out of atheism was the, this idea that the lights in the heavens, the Andromeda gods, for one, was something that always fascinated me. It's the farthest, it's the, it's the, the farthest object you can see with the naked eye. It's two billion light years away or something like that. And you can see it at night with the naked eye. But it means it took two billion years for the light from that galaxy to get here. And the Bible says roughly the Earth's no more than about 10,000 years old. So how is that possible? And I said, see, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> You guys who think you're so smart with your Bible, this right here is impossible because we know it took two billion years, even in the smallest minute, it took at least two billion years for that light to get here. And then I read the text in Genesis 1. God didn't make Andromeda Galaxy first. He made the light first. Then he put the stars and the galaxies out there. He made the light first, and then he made the source of those lights, the physical sources. Like There may not be any light getting here yet from the Andromeda Galaxy. It's going to take a long time, but there's light here already. Just like God made adult plants for the Adam and Eve to be able to eat from right away. They didn't die of starvation waiting for the plant to grow up and produce fruit. They were able to eat right away. They were born as adults. God made the earth ready to go. From now on, things will take however long time takes, uh, however long God allows it to happen. I always thought that was fascinating uh, to look at that. God made the light first. Then he made the sources, if you will, of light. From the sun, it only takes about eight minutes, so that wasn't a problem. But Andromeda was a problem for me and some of these other stars that are out. At any rate, God has made these, and as someone pointed out, he's made them to rule over the day and over the night. Verse 18 says, and that's interesting. They're made to rule and to bind the light from the darkness. Think about that for a moment. In what way does the sun rule? Maybe there's a, probably a better word we can use than rule. Has anybody got the word govern in their translation? The sun and the moon govern over the day and the night? Think about that for a moment. And think about this concept that these lights are there for signs. I want us to combine those two thoughts. How is it that the sun governs or rules over the day? In very simple terms. What does the sun allow for during the day? <laughs> for us to see, for us to do anything we do. In a time when there was no electric light, you went to bed when the sun went down. <laughs> you did very little. Uh, you burned the midnight oil, but you, you had a little candle. You couldn't do a whole lot. Electric light, we can do whatever we want anytime we want to do it now. You've got all night shifts, people doing stuff, whatever they want to do. But think about, in very simple terms, the sun made it possible for whatever happens during the day to happen. Jesus even said that. You must work while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. He played into this idea. So the moon makes it possible to do some things at night, as the moon governs over, gives enough light on the earth at night to be able to do some things by. 
there are some terrible moments in biblical history when there's no sun or moon. Paul was on the, the boat for 14 days. They didn't see the sun or moon nor stars because of the terrible storms they were going through. They were despairing of life. But I want to suggest to you that there's something else that we see in this. This idea of these uh, sun and moon ruling. Sun and moon present light to the earth at all times and the stars as well. And they are a sign of the Lord's rule, of God's rule and his presence, even on the darkest day. There's still starlight. On a new moon, there's starlight out there. There's enough light to navigate by because God has made it so. And think about how Jesus described hell. There's two ways he describes hell. There's one everybody thinks about. Fire and brimstone. It's the, the fire that never quenches. But what's the second way? Darkness. Outer darkness. There'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. We don't like the darkness. Uh, where I come from in Kentucky, they do a cave tour. And I've never been on this, but several brethren have. And you'll go down into the bowels of this cave in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, and they'll turn the lights off. And then the tour guide, after a few minutes, turns on a little pen light he's got and holds it there for two or three minutes. And then he says, bring the lights up. And what I've heard from everybody who's been there is the whole mob is around that guy as close as they can get. They all want to get to that light. Because we understand that the light is good and the darkness is evil. You know, we don't think of it as palpably evil, but there's something about the darkness that just offends us. <laughs> you can turn these lights out and it'd be the same effect and you need to let Kobe know because she's got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, we fear the darkness. And, you know, I remember when our children were little, they didn't have fear of darkness at first and we never taught them a fear of darkness. But I remember one day my oldest threw a ball into the dark bedroom and he was going and getting it and all of a sudden he threw it in there and didn't go get it anymore. He'd stopped at the door and looked in there and like, what are you doing? It's dark. Well, okay, but you went in there the last time you threw it in there. Well, no, it's dark. And he wouldn't go. We had to turn the light on. You've already got the point about the power of light. I mean, just the idea that you can take a light and put it over your head and mm -hmm. at sea and to see the light. Yeah. I mean, it's just nothing, darkness cannot prevail in Absolutely. Any light. Absolutely. And there's always on earth, at least, a reminder of God's rule. In hell, there's no light. But in heaven, Revelation, the Lord is its light. Isn't that interesting? Those are, those are signs, those are symbols, those represent something. And having the sun, the moon, and the stars is a reminder of God's goodness, even when things may, may be wrong. There's a rule there, there's an order, that's the idea. There's this governance that's always visible to us. God's, God can always be seen. I love Psalm 19 talks about the sun going out as the bridegroom. Uh, and his joy, and he goes, and there's nowhere in the world that you can't see the sun. Who's going to escape from the sun? You, know, you can run as fast as you can. He's going to catch you. <laughs> Even if he goes off to the dark side, he's going to come back around. You can't get away from him. And so there's no one that has an excuse that they didn't know the sun existed and that there therefore must be someone who's put the sun on his course. That's just the argument of Psalm 19. Uh, just fascinating. So we're looking at all this, and, and we'll, we'll wrap it up for this first session here at verse 19. But I want to I want to help you see what makes the, the, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up as I look at this section. This is my favorite portion here. As we begin to look at this, and God says that these, these lights are going to be for signs. What's, what's the importance of a sign? Or who, who uses signs? Think about that for just a moment. God presents signs. But up to this moment, do plants need signs? They need seasons and years, certainly, to be able to, to grow the way they should. They need even a dark phase for photosynthesis to work properly. So God has made, in a sense, for the plants. 
What about animals? Do animals read signs or use signs? You know, they say that some animals will lay down when there's going to be an earthquake. Well, that's a sign for us. <laughs> Fish will swim sideways. We've already proven that they do use, uh, well, maybe I'm thinking of the magnetic poles of the earth, but there are things that they use for navigation. Yes. They can recognize certain things long before we can, absolutely. But a sign. <laughs> You think you'd ever see a horse stopping to read which way it should go on the trail? There's just some natural innate ability. Who uses signs? I've whittled down the other possibilities. Humans do. How many humans exist when God put the signs up in the sky? Not one. You know what that means? As God's making the creation, Paul brings this out later in Colossians and some other places. As God's making the creation, he's thinking of me and you. He's thinking of the human beings that are going to come along. They're going to need these signs. They're going to need this atmosphere that is created with this heavens. They're going to need this dry land. They're going to need even the water and what comes out of the water cycle. They're going to need all of this. So he's making all this for us to see him. And he's revealed it in this way so that we'll see him as he truly is. That is the God that we're serving. And if our worldview is anything other than what God is presenting, we're missing out on the biggest part. It's just beautiful to me to see that God was thinking of us as he as he sprinkled the stars up there in the heavens. He wanted us to know he exists, and we miss out on it. We'll hold up for right there so you can take a 10-minute break. I think that's, a, that's good enough. We'll come back at a quarter till, uh, according to my watch. Any questions or comments, though, before we break, or if you'd like to come up and talk with me during the break, that's fine. I'm not going not to leave the room. But I want you guys to have an opportunity to get stretch your legs a little bit. Comments you, or questions before we... Did you me. say you speak Portuguese? Yes, I do. Uh, it wasn't miraculous, though, so I wouldn't call that a sign. I haven't learned it. <laughs> and I may not speak it very well. How fluent? Uh, I'm pretty fluent. I mean, I, I lived there for 13 years, so I was able to conquer a wife. I heard say that in English. Conquer is not the right word in 